in yesterday's class, I quoted Edmund Burke, who gave a speech in 1774 in Parliament concerning the taxation of the American colonies, which he was against, and of course, and, and Britons um, continuously putting their boot on the neck of America um, out of really just pride and dignity, uh, but also they wanted money, but, you know, that's beside the point. But here was the quote I gave you yesterday, and this he gives this impassioned speech, you know, Burke is uh, was a brilliant man and an amazing orator. Uh, he could get you laughing and crying and running, you know, storming the Bastille, and that's a different country, but you know what I mean? Like, he could really get you going. He was a great orator. And uh, he said this, The distempered vigor and insane alacrity with which you are rushing to your ruin. And uh, he was sure, as well as many others uh, who um, were against what the government was doing with the Americas, were sure that if, and they did, obviously, lose the Americas, that Great Britain would be over, that they would no longer be a great empire. And that's what he's saying here. He says you're rushing to your ruin. So the reason why I put this up again is because while he was right in his estimation of the government's folly, this great amount of folly that the government had fallen into, he was completely wrong about the fact that the British Empire would crumble without America. It did not. In fact, the loss of America didn't have a great impact on Britain, and they remained for the next century a world empire, right, up till World War II. So, you know, uh, why do I do that? Because there's only one person who's always right, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who's always right. He's the only one who gets the future dead-on accurate every time. Whereas others, though they may be smart and they may get some things right, it doesn't mean they're going to get everything right. And so the same is true for us. We get some things right, and we may start to get a little you know, confidence in our ability to discern. And if we leave our Lord and leave his word, then we're going to start being wrong more and more. And as we'll see today, the more deception you have, the more you're going to get. And so, let's uh, begin in our main passage in 2 Thessalonians 2 to see where we're at. And let's start with prayer. and Let's be thankful to God for this time to be able to hear his word. And uh, just remember to be reverent and thankful and uh, always ready to concentrate while... Uh, while learning, because this is a time, as we'll see, when we're studying God's word, this is when we're alone with God and together in an intimate uh, atmosphere where he will expose the truth. With that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and, and for another time in which we can be alone with you and listen and learn. We know, Father, that you will reveal to us through your Spirit within and reveal the truth, expose the truth, so that we will understand it. When we come to you in your word, we're like the disciples asking Jesus why he said what he said or to explain what he said. And uh, though we don't have him with us now, we do have the Holy Spirit and him indwelling us. 
And so, Father, we, by the Spirit, can learn your word. As we search, as we ask, as we seek, as we knock, we will know. And the more we know, the more you will give us. The more deceived we are, the more deception we're going to get. So we ask, Father, that you correct any deceptions in our hearts that you can possibly in our message today. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So the theme uh, today is that everyone hears the truth, but without seeking Christ as your Lord, well, without seeking Christ in his word, it's impossible to understand it. The word is proclaimed, the truth is proclaimed from the rooftops. That's what Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 8. And it always will be, it will be proclaimed. We saw yesterday that during the tribulation period, not only the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, but you have three angels that are depicted in Revelation 14 who are circumnavigating the globe, spreading the truth. The gospel, the judgment to come, the judgment upon Babylon, and the judgment upon every individual who rejects the gospel. And so everybody hears the truth, but without seeking Christ, it's impossible to understand. And so, as my title is today, that you are equipped to see and hear the Lord's knowledge and wisdom. And and this is... um, such a gift to us. You must understand what a gift you have. I mean, you have many of them. But as a believer, you get to see the secrets of knowledge and wisdom. You, you, can, you can see it. If you seek, you're going to see it. He promises that. You have the open to you. and so That's why it's so important that we're not deceived about anything. Now, all of us are deceived about something, you know, or else we'd have perfect knowledge. But we want to, as time goes on, we want to keep learning. Never assume that you know everything about a subject or a doctrine or a passage. Don't do that. Also know that the Bible is there to speak to you, not for you to speak to it. So don't put your ideas into the Scripture. Let the Scriptures give you the truth. That's called exegesis. Exegesis comes out of the scripture. So in our passage here, uh, we have the fact that we actually, let's just skip right down to verses 10 and 11. Now let's start at verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, and this we're, now we're focusing on this last line, For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. In order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. That same wickedness is, it's the same word used in verse 10, which is all the deception of wickedness. Uh, Again, it's a Greek word that means unrighteousness. Um, So do you ever wonder... Jesus says, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So what does that sound like? 
You know, when you think about that, it, it can be a confusing statement because you don't say, well, the measure of what? And, uh, you know, does it, you know, you give and you get, is that what he means? And he speaks that, what I just said, in reference to judging. He says in Matthew 7, 2, in terms of judging others, if you judge, you will be judged. By the measure that you judge, that's the context, you will be judged in return. But then in another place, and this is at another time, it's not in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you and more will be given to you besides. Now, it's the same thing as he said in Matthew 7. This is in Mark 4. But in Mark 4, this is a different place. It's not the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the same place. It's not the same time. But he says the same thing, but then he adds to it. He says, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you and more will be given to you besides. And so we want to know what the context of that is. And obviously it is a context that is something to do with what we're going to look at today in reference to our final uh, message here this week on deception. This week we attempted to focus on two things. First, what does the Bible say about deception? What is it and what does the Bible say about deception? Uh, we did that Sunday and Tuesday. And then Wednesday, we kind of, we did what is deception, but then started to move over to number two, which we'll complete today, hopefully. And, you know, we could, you could teach on any subject for a year, obviously, so we're not going to touch on absolutely everything. But um, what does, why, sorry, why does God send a strong delusion to those who are already deceived? We just read that in verse 11, right? Uh, verse 12, no, verse 11 and 12 is one sentence. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they'll believe what is false. But they're already deceived. As we saw in verse 10, they're deceived with all the deception of wickedness because they don't love the truth. And so they're deceived. And this is in reference to the tribulational period. And so the, the further to this is this adding of delusion by God, does this only happen in the tribulation or does it happen in other times of history? Does it happen all the time? Is God actually sending delusion so that people will believe false things in time? And we have to ask ourselves, you know, is that fair? Well, of course, we would never think God is unfair, but um, <clears throat> we want to get to the heart of that. You know, on the surface, it looks like it's unfair. I mean, why? And plus, uh, you know, why would God, who wants to spread the truth, be spreading falsehood? Or is he spreading falsehood? How is he deluding them? So uh, let's look at first Isaiah. Go to Isaiah 29. Now, Isaiah 29, first off, is the context. In context, it's a prophecy. Of course, there you we're not surprised. Isaiah is a prophet. It's the biggest prophetic book um, in the Scripture. It's a Bible within a Bible. And, um, and here in chapter 29, he's prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem would be destroyed, oh, about... Um, about 150 years after uh, Isaiah prophesies, 
uh, and then it would be destroyed again by the Romans in 70 AD, and then it goes through its trouble in the tribulation, though not to be destroyed. Uh, but here, the context is of the destruction of Jerusalem. And notice what God said. Look at verse 9. He says, be delayed and wait. Blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. Be delayed and wait. Now, Hebrew poetry uses parallelism. The second line is going to... Uh, emphasize or magnify the first line and when you look at them together they magnify each other it's brilliant poetry uh, by the way a third of the bible is roughly poetry so there's going to come a time where we're really going to have to get into poetry as soon as i learn enough about it but <clears throat> be delayed and wait notice blind yourselves and be blind why would i blind myself they become, and this, that line says, you know, we have a hint here of, wait a minute, who's doing the blinding? They become drunk, but not with wine, stagger, but not with strong drink. So what are they drunk with? And then in verse 10, for the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. Notice the intensification. This is a three-line poem. Uh, this stanza, uh, the whole chapter is a poem, but this three-line stanza has first God pours over. He's the one, but it's a spirit of deep sleep. So that, that speaks of something within, correct? Like it's a spirit, something within, and it's a deep sleep. And then he shut your eyes, and then in the next line he covered your head. So this progresses. First we think of sleep. Then we think of somebody covering our eyes. And then we think of someone covering our heads. And the picture is darkness. Being lost. Right? It's having a hood over your, over your head. You can't see. In the previous stanza, he says, blind, you blind yourselves at here. God is doing the blinding. And this should, you know, in our passage, we have, does God, does God come into the world and say, uh, randomly, I'm going to blind you, but I'm going to give you sight, and I'm going to blind you, and now you know how many people are here, right? So, uh, you know, and I'm going to blind, but I'm going to give you guys sight, but I'm going to blind you guys, and it's random. Obviously not. The blinding happens by our, by our own decisions. And from that blindness comes more. And we ask ourselves, well, you know, why does God do this? But, and we'll get to that. So now, and look at verse 11. The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book which when they give it to the one who is literate, saying, please read this, he will say, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book will be given to one who is illiterate, saying, please read this. And he will say, I cannot read. So here, the book is there, but it's sealed. Why is it sealed? And then to someone that it's given that, you know, we could presume in verse 12, it's unsealed somehow, 
but then the person is illiterate and can't read it. So the truth here is revealed, but people are blinding themselves and also God is blinding them. So go to Isaiah 6 where we see Isaiah's very initial message from God. Imagine the ministry that Isaiah is given. And I mean, in all honesty, when Isaiah is commissioned to be a prophet to Israel, he's set up to fail. This isn't, all right, God, God says to Isaiah, you know what? You're going to be the most awesome prophet I ever, I ever set forth. Which, reasonably, he could be. He, he, I mean, he's amazing. He was. I say he is, right? He's in heaven. But, uh, you know, and you're going you're gonna to wow them. You know, I'm going to give you this gift of prophecy. You're going to go on it's all throughout Israel. And they're all going to hear you. And when they hear you, they're all just going to, you know, just raise their hands and clap their hands and really respond to you. And they're not. He's set up to fail. It doesn't mean everyone. You know, it doesn't mean he fails in everything. But he does. In a great, in in whatever aspect. But we see it here. In Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, "Whom Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, now this Isaiah now says, I'm, I'm ready. Let's go. Send me. Go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. You know, that's what Isaiah's ministry A great deal of it is going to be. Keep listening, folks. You have ears. You're hearing everything I'm saying, but you're not hearing it. Your eyes are working fine. You're seeing everything that I'm saying. You see me. You see the Word. You see the the history of Israel. You see it, but you don't see. And then, render the hearts of those people insensitive. Well, you know... uh, Isaiah can't really do that, but God can. And so what does that mean? Fortunately for us, the Lord Jesus quotes this very verse. Uh, So go to Matthew 13.10. My picture is of some, some artisan imagining the parable of the sower, which Jesus said in this passage is the chief of the parables. It said it was the key to all the rest of them. And uh, we'll look at it. Well, actually, we won't. We don't have enough time to look at it now. But we've looked at it a few times. We'll, it's As being the chief of the parables, we're bound to come back to it over and over. So look at Matthew 13.10. And this is all in reference to parables. Okay? So this passage and what we'll see in Mark 4, we want to keep passages in context. And we'll see that here. So look at verse 10. And the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So why is that? Just God picked them and say, No, I don't want to reveal it to you. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And to he 
and sorry, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Now, this we have to unravel, because if he doesn't have, how can he have something to be taken away? Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull in their ears, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But you notice, as he quotes this, which he would quote it out of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, he has this, they otherwise, uh, sorry, they have closed their eyes. So it's not random, and of course we know that, but we have to establish it. The people who are getting spoken to in parables have already made up their minds about who Jesus is. By this time in Matthew 13, there has already been a great divide in Israel and in, in Judah and in Galilee where, where you know, some have, many of them have already made a decision on who Jesus is. But he says to his disciples who have made the right decision about who Jesus is, but blessed are your eyes because they see in your ears because they hear. Why is it that the disciples see and hear? For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Like Isaiah, who had longed, would have longed to see and hear the Messiah. The one that he wrote of, that he spoke of, especially to King Ahaz. And he said, from a virgin, a child will be born to us. He longed for it. You and I get to see and hear. I mean, if that doesn't jazz you, you need to check your pulse. Right? Because you and I get to hear and see the Lord Jesus Christ. And any believer who doesn't take advantage of that, well, you know, they're gonna they themselves are creating their own deception. And, as we'll see, with deception comes more. We've already seen it here, but we'll see it a little more clearly as we go on. <clears throat> now, he spoke the first five parables to the public, to the general public. Uh, and in this case, he is in the boat. Look at Matthew 13, 1. Go back to verse 1. It says, that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, and here he starts with the parable of the sower. Behold, the sower went out to sow. All right, so he, the first five parables is to the, the whole crowd. Now, there's plenty in the crowd who have not accepted Christ or Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ. They have not believed. We'll see that. <clears throat> so, uh, the final three, well, it could be four. It depends on if you count eight parables here. Some count seven, some count eight. 
in 52, there's a quick little parable about old thing, new things and old things that could be an eighth. But he spoke the final parables in private to his disciples. Look at Matthew, go to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. Tares of the field. So, there is, they go into the house. Jesus is going to teach them in the house these last three or four parables. And they're also, because they're with him and they desire to know, they ask him, could you explain it to us? And he does. And it says in the Gospels that he explained it all to them. Everything. He didn't leave anything unexplained. And you see, this now, fast forward to us with the Spirit and the Word of God, and you know, with help from a pastor teacher that God gives you in the church, that we all get to sit alone with Jesus in the house and have him espouse or expose the Scripture. You know, I can be the crowd in the boat who is here in this parable, and I'm like, well, what... What's a, what do you mean seed and birds and thorns and thistles and good soil and rocky soil? Like, what the heck is he talking about? Is it, is it a story for children? Because that's what it sounds like. Now, once you hear it, you could say to yourself, well, you know, I know this is the Lord of glory and I know what he says is vitally important. And so... I'm going to find out what this means. And that's what the disciples do. And in our, you know, in, during the church, there have been Christians who have sought out the truth of the Word of God and others that could take it or leave it. You know, I, don't, I don't understand that. Oh, well, see you next Sunday. Yeah, they, they have the opportunity. They can find it. But they don't. And Jesus is going to say here, that is your measure. You heard the truth. How did you measure it? Was it heavy? Was it something that was of extreme value to you? And so valuable that if something didn't, you didn't understand, that you, you sought for it with all your heart and soul? Or was it light? You heard the word of God and you're like, eh, whatever. Now for us... This, the gates are wide open. The windows of heaven are wide open with the truth for us. And we have the whole Bible. I'm astounded. Um, it's just incredible. It's like, uh, how in the world could anybody learn it all? So, uh, go to Mark 4. So a believer studying the Word of God sits in private with Jesus and by the Holy Spirit gets expository teaching from the Lord. Now, especially for you guys, you, you get so much Bible teaching and you know so much that just, you know, if you read your English by a good English translation, you can go really far with understanding. You could sit with your Bible and read some Proverbs or Psalms or read a Gospel and you would understand a great deal of it. And you would learn more. 
not would you it's you know the the thing the bible is alive and powerful so every time you read it you learn more every time you hear it but you know you don't just have to hear it from me you can read it for yourself and you will learn a great deal yeah i was thinking we've been uh, i have been in a course i'm taking studying proverbs and i'm like yeah how in the world could i ever teach the book of proverbs <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I could, or psalms. Could I? Could a pastor really teach every psalm? We'd be at it for five years. And the and the proverbs are little two-line couplets. It's bam, bam, and then the next proverb has nothing to do usually with the one that comes before it. And then it's bam, bam. There's another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. Hundreds and hundreds of them. So what are they there for? They're there for us to read. And by the way, if you sat there with Proverbs, which I've done, I've read through the book twice now in the last few weeks, and like, I, you know, I'll finish a chapter and be like, what in the world did I just read? I don't know. It's because they're so mix, mismatched. One's about wisdom, one's about sex, the one's about money, one's about this and that and uh, your speech and on and they're all jumbled up and they're designed for you to grab hold of say one or two and either you remember you don't have to memorize them word for word depends on what translation you have but <clears throat> they are there for you to remember so it's up to you, even if I did teach them, they'd go in one ear and out the other unless you sat here tonight or today and memorized them. Because by the time you get home, you ain't going to remember the proverb that I just stated, which I'm going to state one ear coming up in a second. But if you remember it, in other words, read it enough, often enough, and then you don't have to have it word for word, you just need the gist of it. And then you would have the wisdom of God ready to go in your head for every single situation you would ever face. You say, I know a proverb that applies to this. Imagine that wisdom. And I don't have it. I'm going to work on it. But anyway, here we are in Mark 4. To get me distracted here with Proverbs. Mark 4.33. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable. All right, so this is to the crowd, to the general crowd. He spoke to them in parables as far as they were able to hear it. He spoke to them in parables, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. And notice the word everything. <clears throat> so, you know, you can either be, and I think this applies to a believer greatly, you can either be outside in the crowd being like, well, I kind of got half of that, but whatever. Or I can be in the inner circle with the Lord and, you know, the scripture and saying, could you explain that, please? Because I need to know this. Before I leave your presence, I need to know what we're talking about here. And that is the great difference between have, being a deceived person and not. And so we can see why the parables, right? the parables are these simple stories. They're concrete, they're simple, 
but they need explanation often. Some of them don't. Some of them are very clear. But many of them need a little bit of explanation. But also there are stories with multiple you know, characters or events in them and, and they need to be pondered. The difference. So here we go. Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Maybe that one we probably remember. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hence, the fool is a fool. Proverbs 14.6, a scoffer seeks wisdom and finds none, but knowledge is easy to the one who has understanding. <clears throat> a scoffer is a fool. That's the one who hears and goes, ah, that's stupid. That's scoffing. Here's the truth. Ah, that's a fairy tale. That's just a kid's story. That's nothing. It means nothing. I'm smarter than that. That's scoffing. Colossians 2, 2 through 3. A tr- 2 through 3. A true knowledge of God's mystery, which here, I'm truncating this verse terribly, but <clears throat> Christ is the mystery. As Paul is writing about the mystery and here in Colossians, that Christ is the mystery in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And treasure... And that, there's a great, that neat little application here, although the, you know Paul doesn't know what English is going to become, obviously, but the, the Greek word for treasure is thesaurus. And it's where we get thesaurus from. It's a, it's a treasure of words. And, <clears throat> you know, that's, it's, it, but it does mean treasure. It could be of gold or anything. Uh, the Greek word is now, but this treasure is of wisdom and knowledge. Where is it? It's only in one place. Only in one place. It's not in any human mind unless that human mind is speaking the words of God. It's only in one place. So the disciples went to the source. Could you explain this to us? They were in the house. They were in the Bible study with the Lord. The people in the crowd are like, I don't get it and I don't care. Many of them. So without Christ and without subsequent fellowship with him and his word, which we have the Holy Spirit within to make sense of it, right? So we have this huge advantage over any unbeliever. The unbeliever can learn something of the word of God, but they can't learn it like we can. We have to take advantage of this. We have the treasure stores of wisdom and knowledge. And if we don't pursue it, they remain unfound. I mean, what's more important? Now, is delusion, therefore, the sole purpose of the parables? So, here's my point. Is he, but he's quoted, as we saw, he quoted Isaiah 6, that they keep on hearing, but they don't hear. You'll keep on hearing, but not understand. You keep seeing, but you won't perceive. And he said, why do I speak to them in parables? It's because to you it's been granted to know the mysteries. To them it has not. They are blind. But they have blinded themselves, and God is adding to their blindness. So, if I haven't accepted Christ as Messiah, then the parable comes, and I don't understand what that means. It's a silly story. And so, the parable, for some people, is discipline. Now, I'm not going to speak to you plainly. I could say to you... uh, you know, if you're an unbeliever, 
you're going to be judged and end up in the lake of fire. Or I could teach you the parable of the wheat and the tares. Yeah, I could just flat out say, do the will of the father. Or I could teach you the parable of the, the father and the two sons that were told to go work in the vineyard. You know, and, and But they have already been told. They've rejected the truth. And then comes the truth in a way that demands it be searched. It has to be pondered, thought about, listened to, concentrated on, studied over and over. Right? We all know in this room that we hear a passage the first time. We don't really know a whole lot about it. We hear it again and again and again, and we learn more and more and more. Why is that? Because God has made the truth for those who will hear it. Jesus said to Pilate, those who are of the truth, they hear my voice. They want it. They want the truth, just like the disciples here are asking the Lord. So in this context, we can see that uh, first off, we'll see in a second, that people were at the stage in Jesus' ministry in Matthew 13 where people have already taken sides. Many have. And the Pharisees had already begun to plot how they might put him to death. And the leaders have spread the rumor that Jesus gets his power from Satan. And people are going to hear this. People are going to hear this lie. That that man you're seeing commit do all these miracles, he gets his power from the devil, not from God. And they're going to be faced with that statement. <clears throat> Therefore, the parables serve to serve the purpose of discriminating against those who heard Jesus. The stories do not create sin in their hearts, or otherwise. Uh, you know, if you're innocent, hearing the parable of the sower is not going to cause you to sin or reject Christ. He doesn't even mention his name in it. But when addressed to those who have set themselves against the Lord, the parables become instruments of judgment. So look at Mark 4:21. And he was saying to them, now in light, the context here is him teaching in parables. And if we keep the context, this verse really comes alive for us. And he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought, sorry, a lamp is, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? <clears throat> is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears, let him hear. And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. Whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And you see what he says there? This is exactly what Paul is getting at, where God is going to send them a, a further delusion on those, a strong delusion, that's the word, the phrase, on those who have already been deceived because they're going to get more. And as we saw in Isaiah 29, God is the one who sends it. He sends them a spirit of stupor, a spirit of blindness or of sleep where he covers their heads so that they can't see. But they already covered their eyes. So the darkness just gets deeper. It's amazing. 
truth. So keeping in the context, first off, he says a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket. This would be idiotic. Uh, We leave our lights on in our house. I mean, not not we. uh, I shouldn't say like my house. I run around turning lights off. But uh, and most of us do, except for that that little person who lives there. She hasn't she hasn't learned that yet. But <clears throat> you know, why do we turn them off? Were you just wasting electricity keeping a light on? In uh, in the ancient world, it's a lamp that has oil in it, and oil ain't cheap. And so, <clears throat> if you light a lamp and then put a basket over it, you're just basically taking oil and throwing it in the trash. You'd be throwing away money. From that plain example, then, he states that nothing is hidden that will not be revealed, nor secret that will not come to light. He uses the example of the lamp saying, look, if you light a lamp, you put it on a lampstand, and I'm telling you that nothing said here is going to remain secret. Well, what has been said? If you take this passage out of context, people say, oh, you whispered that lie to somebody and it's going to be, the whole world's going to find out. But do they? There's a lot of people whispering little lies all over the place. I don't know. They're not found out. Does he mean in eternity all the lies that you told and all the secrets that you told, he's going to blare all over heaven? But the context here is parables and that's what's in secret. It will come to the light. The parable will. The meaning of the parable of the sower, the meaning of the parable of the wheat and the tares, the meaning of all the parables, even to an unbeliever, is going to come to the light. But when it comes to the light for them, say at the judgment seat of Christ, or a great white throne judgment, it's going to be too late. It's too late. They're going to know Jesus is Lord. Every knee is going to bow, correct. They're going to know this. The meaning of the parable will come to light. We need to see it now. And that's what he's getting at. The same with all doctrines and all truth. We need to see it now and not wait. That's the lamp. And then he says, if you have ears, hear. Right? If you have ears, hear. Well, do you? Well, where do we get ears that hear? The disciples have, oh boy, really? All right, we'll keep going. The disciples have them, and we have. If you're a born-again believer, you have them. But you can put your hands over them. I mean, believers, not every believer has knowledge, has wisdom from Scripture. Not all believers do. We know this. And then he says, take care what you listen to. Does he mean don't watch that R-rated movie? That's PG-13. Don't listen to that rap music. Now, of course, an evil movie and some terrible music can do a doozy on your soul over time. But again, the, the, the context here is not anything other than parables. Be careful. Take care what you listen to. In light of the parables, he's telling them to be careful what you believe. Be careful. Believing lies has an amazing effect. We've seen it this week in the tribulation, the effect that it has. We've seen it in the last couple of weeks with the fact that deception in the soul leads to sin. 
and it leads to misery. We live in a moral universe. You need truth to get by in this God's universe. You need truth to live. It's our great quantity, our, our great great quality that we must have. And the truth is alive. The word is alive and powerful. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God. And and from it we see God. The secrets of wisdom and knowledge. So take care of what you listen to. That the context is parables, not movies and music. When you hear a parable of the sower, is it a silly tale? Now, of course, for you guys, it's not. I know that. But for us, when we hear the word of God, don't be afraid of any passage. I remember being afraid, reading passages and being like getting uncomfortable because I didn't know what they meant. And I just wanted to turn the page as quick as possible. If you don't understand it, fine. Just know that everything God reveals in his word is understandable and it's beautiful. Don't turn your eyes from it. Sometimes passages smack us across the face. You've had this. I've had this. And we want to turn from it. Block our eyes from it. But that's exactly what they did. Don't do that. You know, The great deception is that God is not enough. God is holding back. God is not. This was in the Garden of Eden at the beginning. God doesn't want you to eat of this tree because then you'll know what He knows. He's holding back from you. And so we, our flesh, and Satan wants us to do this, we compromise with the truth and say, well, I'll do some of the truth, but you know, God's truth is not enough. If I, if I obey it all, I'll come up short, won't I? I won't have as much fun as I could. I won't be as prosperous as I could. I won't be as smart or as good or as cool or as whatever as I could. And that's just basically saying that God's not enough. But that is a great, that is the greatest deception. So be careful what you hear. If you hear to pursue understanding, that's having ears. That's being careful how to hear properly. And then he says, by your standard of measure... By your, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, verse 24, it will be measured to you. And then more will be given besides. What are you measuring? By your standard. You say your standard, not my standard. Your standard of measure. What are you measuring? Well, it's what you're listening to. You make a call on that. And they did. They heard that Jesus got his power from Satan. How do they measure that? You know, when they heard that, the people in the crowd, how did they measure that? You know, while they're while Jesus is in the boat, let me go back to our picture. While Jesus is in the boat, there's Pharisees, Sadducees, those who are against him who are you know, he just uh, in Matthew's gospel uh, has healed Multiple people, and he's healing and healing. He's healing so many, thousands more than are recorded in the Scripture for us. So this whole crowd has seen him heal. And now he's in the boat teaching them parables. And they're like scratching their head being like, well, I don't understand the parable, but I just saw him heal a blind man, a deaf man, and he's talking about being blind and deaf. You know, maybe I should listen. Uh, You know, 
what is he? And even for us who have believed upon still faced with that question, aren't we? I know I am. I mean, I know who he is, but do I really know all of him? And I think to myself, man, I how much do I really know about him? So little. But it's when believers say, I know that, I know that. You stop searching. You need to search out Him. Who is He? What is He about? What does He love? What does He elevate? What does He honor? And why? Why does He honor those things? What does He want with me? You know, questions galore. And we can answer these questions. But there are people running around in this crowd saying, this guy, you know, you just saw him heal somebody. He only does that because Satan's empowering him. And some in the crowd are going, oh, well, that makes sense. Now I know why he's talking gibberish out there on the boat because he's empowered by Satan. I'm smarter than that. There's probably a lot of that going around. So, in verse 25, and this is our passage, right? In our passage in 2 Thessalonians 2, for this reason, God says, God will send, Paul says, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they'll believe what is false. In order that they may be judged. And then we see in Isaiah 6, seeing, but they have eyes they don't see, they have ears they don't hear. Jesus quotes it here. <clears throat> and then he's in Mark 4.25, you're there, you can read it. For whoever has to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken from him. Whoever has, has what? Ears to hear. If you have ears to hear, you're going to learn more and more and more. You have truth that you have put your faith in, more will be given. You have wisdom from God, from Christ, more will be given. And see, for us, this is something that we get to look forward to in the future. I'm going to know more. And please avoid the trap that will make you stupid. That you're going to learn more so you'll be impressive. You're going to learn more so that people will know how smart you are. And that will just make you dumb. Because that's just pride. The purpose of learning more of him is that in itself, learning more of him. And that's what we need to be excited about. I'm going to every day learn more about this great, amazing, mysterious God-man who is my Lord, husband, brother, and high priest. So whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Well, What's going to be taken away? Well, for this, we go back to Matthew. Go back to Matthew 12, 15. What will be taken away? You know, when people start to be deceived, they're not completely deceived. If that's true, then they couldn't be deceived anymore, right? And there's some truth rolling around in there. I mean, even if it's uh, secular, on a secular level, um, an unbeliever understands that love is a good thing. 
All right? They don't know the love of God, but at least they've got something there. They know something is good. They know kindness is good. Uh, they know that, say it's even the truth that they don't know everything. And because pride is a great blinder of the truth. In the parable of the sower, the seed sowed against the side of the road, the birds come and take it away. And, and the birds there represent Satan, and they're taking away. Why are they able? Why are the birds able to take the seed away? Well, it, we see it right here. Now, on the Sabbath, Jesus in this in Matthew 12, on the Sabbath, Jesus heals a man's hand. The Pharisees conspire on how they might destroy him. They see this healing; they've had it with him. Because he's not only healing on a Sabbath, which is driving them crazy, which is in no way a violation of the law, but they, uh, but he is exposing them and teaching sol- and teaching truth, and, and they cannot stand him. So in Matthew 12:15, Jesus, aware of this, that they wanted to kill him, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and he warned them not to tell them who he was. Then he quotes Isaiah, Isaiah first servant song, Isaiah 42. That he would not cry out or lift up his voice or a broken reed, he would, or a smoldering wick he would not extinguish, and so on. Many followed him and he healed them all. And then in verse 23, skip down to verse 23. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? Now, what are they? Now, these are Jews in the first century. And that means, when they say Son of David, that means Messiah. That means nothing else to them. They know what they're saying. Is this man the Messiah? You see, the very idea that he could be is something that they have. Now, when the Pharisees, in the next verse, say, when the Pharisees heard this, they hear people in the crowd saying, could this be the Messiah? They said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. It's another term for Satan. <clears throat> so, what are they going to do with this statement? They've had in their possession the idea that he could be the Messiah. But then comes the lie. And the lie is, yeah, uh, it Maybe on the surface it looks like he could be the son of David, but here comes the lie that says, no, no, he's not. You're just being fooled. He is uh, a child of the devil, really. And yeah, that's when the bird snatches the seed. So what about in our age? This happened every day to millions of people. Could Jesus really be the Savior? And then something comes. Something. Uh, whatever. Science. Oh, I'm too smart for that. Uh, that's just nonsense. You know, you lived a long time ago. No, that can't be right. Somebody comes. Something happens. In uh, screw tape letters, there's this wonderful passage where screw tape is describing, if you know screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, it's a demon who's, who is assigned to this guy and he's in a library and he starts to think that maybe some things might be true. 
And the demon says, I convinced him that he needed to go to lunch. And, he's, and I convinced him, you can't think about things like this that are this deep on an empty stomach. You should really go to lunch. And by the time I got him out the door and across the street, he forgot about it completely. And all he could think about was eating lunch. And now that's the C.S. Lewis, right? It's just he's making that up. But yeah, how many times has such things like that happened? And that is the bird snatching the seed. Now, to us, you and I have the privilege of seeing and hearing the secret wisdom and knowledge of the Lord. Colossians 2, in him. That's Edmund Burke. I don't want you, Edmund. I want you. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, 3. What is distracting me from it, if it is? What's pulling me away from it? What is it when I, when I want it, I think I want to, you know, hear the word of God? How about this? Because this is going to come up again soon. Prayer. I feel the need to pray. Eh, I can do it later. I should read his word. Eh, or I should go to Bible class. Or I should listen to a class. Eh, maybe later. What else? What else is coming? See, because if I'm not taking full advantage of now, because you and I are disciples in the house, in the inner room, with the Lord, both in prayer to ask and to have his word exposed to us so that we can learn it. We have to take full advantage of it. And we can spend decades not doing that. And our deception, and as he said here, to, if you, whatever you have, more will be given. If I have deception, then I'm going to receive more. And as we know, believers can be deceived. So why do you speak to them in parables? That's why. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the Gospels that you've recorded for us, the history of our Lord and what he said, just exactly what we need to know. We didn't need any more. And so, Father, what you have revealed, we're so grateful for. May your spirit within us reveal to each of us the need and desire to be on fire for your word and to learn as much of it as we can learning the secrets of wisdom and knowledge. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.